Hello everyone, it's May 25th, 2021, so Jurong is roving on Mars. Its journey has just begun and it's quite a sight to see. There's just landers and rovers and helicopters all over that planet. Not to mention satellites in orbit. All that's missing now is people, really. Maybe one day, but for right now, lift off. For the tower, welcome to episode 310 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And, and no Dennis. This week. <laughs> yeah. And a semester. Yeah. He's got a lot of papers to grade. I'm sure he's got his red marker out. I don't know. Whatever. That was an old reference. Yeah. Well, especially if it's um, if it's online classes, which not everybody's doing these days, but <laughs> Chris in the chat says uh, red highlighting tool. <laughs> so anyway, in the news, um, so Firefly uh, is hitching a ride with SpaceX. Uh how cool is that? Or weird, I guess, because uh, I think of them as a launch vehicle company. Yeah. But they also have a lunar lander. So they're a lunar lander company, and they're going to be using someone else's launch vehicle, and that would be SpaceX. Yeah. I don't think that they can get – what is it called? Blue – what's their lander uh, called? Blue Ghost. Blue Ghost. Yeah. I don't think that they their vehicle can get it to the moon. I believe – like this is pretty early. This is like years ago where they were talking about putting a lunar lander on the surface and that they were going to use their own launch vehicle. I think I recall that since Firefly was one of the very first interviews we ever had. And, and I think that they were talking about it even then. I mean not with Blue Ghost because I don't think that that was actually a thing yet. But they always had ambitions of landing something on the moon. I mean who who doesn't though? You know. Yeah. So this is the fifth contracted launch that SpaceX has for the Commercial Lunar Payload Service program. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's just six of them, and they have five of those sixes. I don't know who's going with what launcher uh, for that sixth one, but yeah, all the rest are going with SpaceX. Like, it's funny because, like, we talk a lot about, I don't know, I guess just like trying to be realistic about SpaceX because there's so much hype. Mm-hmm. And, and the reality is that they've got a huge market share. Like they, they really do a heck of a lot of work. Yeah. It's just because they have a launch vehicle that, you know, works i mean (laughs) and it's and it comes in like at a good price you know like if you don't have the lift capacity or you don't even have a launch i mean like you can't go with blue origin obviously that's they don't they've never put anything into orbit and an organization like ula is going to be quite a bit pricier and so yeah i mean they're just the logical pricier and and it's a longer wait I'm assuming, mm-hmm. depending on what you're doing, you're going to be waiting for a while. Yeah, there's like the Ariane Five, I suppose, and there's you know some Russian options there, and those are probably better than you know having to go with ULA in in terms of raw price. Yeah. Yeah, um, but really, it's just SpaceX. I mean, you know, and hopefully one day Rocket Lab. Can't wait to see that. I I have faith in Rocket Lab, despite their recent mishap. So, Jurong Roves, the Jurong Rover. I, I wrote the, the least pronounceable headline I possibly Yeah. Well, so the lander touched down, what, about a week ago? Um, and now it's finally uh, come down from its uh, yeah, from, from its, its little perch there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the landing was on the 14th, and uh, it the the lander and rover are now safely in Utopia Planitia, and on the 22nd, uh, the rover hopped off of the top of the lander. And there are some pretty good photos um, online. I'll have some in the show notes. Uh, who was it? I saw somebody who tweeted uh, what looked like a video. Or it looked like it was going to be a gif of a bunch of stills, but it was... Oh, it was Andrew Jones. As far as I can tell, it's a, a series of like three photos put into a video and looped. And it's a it's a little weird. Oh, no, I reloaded it. It's actually, it's actually like five photos um, and it's looped. Um, and it's like, yeah, cool. Rovers on Mars are awesome, but at this point, the footage is getting just a, 
a tiny bit boring. Um, cause like <laughs> we, we know what this looks like, you know, it's not going to be exciting until it's bad exciting, I think. <laughs> um, but it's, it's really cool to see, um, Chinese hardware on Mars actually. Well, it's just like from an aesthetic point of view, like it, it actually looks very Russian, which makes sense. Cause they've bought a lot of, um, a lot of plans, uh, f- from Russia plans and research or whatever from Russia. But like, yeah, it's, it's cool to see something on Mars that's moved around that isn't very American, like, you know, all different, uh, engineering sources, they all produce, um, hardware that looks slightly different. And it's cool. Cause this is not an American lander, you know, in what way does it look more Russian or Chinese? Because, uh, to me, I mean, it's, it's like obviously a very different landing system. So I guess there's that, but is there, but like, is there anything specific besides the fact that it's not a sky crane? Um, yeah, I mean, there are some really common components that, that don't really have uh, a national flavor. Uh, in my opinion, like, uh, wheels generally look like wheels, um, hinges generally look like hinges. Um, but if you look at one of the photos of the top deck, uh, of the lander, everything's just like a little beefier, you know, like, um, lots of, uh, round extrusions, uh, and rounded square extrusions, um, really heavy interfaces where they use screws to, to actually screw, um, different extruded sections together. It doesn't look like what I expect from an American vehicle. I feel like the, the wire harnesses are different too. Like they feel more spidery. I feel like NASA, um, spends a, a lot of, a lot of intention getting everything bundled up together. Um, and on, uh, on Russian vehicles, you tend to get, you know, more strands kind of just spidering out in different directions. I don't know. Maybe I'm making all this up, hmm. uh, but it, yeah. I, I have no way to exclude my, uh, my biases there, you know? So has any other lander ever landed or not landed, but has any other rover come off of its lander in this way? Cause, um, that's the first thing that I noticed was that there are two separate tracks for each side of the vehicle for it to come down. And when opportunity and those, when they, those ones were bundled up right in a big bouncy, like airbag yeah. system. Yeah, the, yeah, MSR, yeah. Then you had sort of like this little box which unfolded and then it came down along one side. I believe that that's how those uh, made it onto the surface. This one is interesting though because actually I would like to know more about how exactly it touched down because this did not bounce obviously. This landed, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, uh, parachutes and retro rockets. So since it's like nearly as big as Perseverance, I guess you can do retro rockets in this way because it seems more practical, but I guess the only way that you could have gotten something as big as Perseverance perseverance down would you know be to do the whole sky crane maneuver um because if not like why not have a a retro rocket you know bring down a lander and then have it roll off of that oh you mean you mean why didn't perseverance have a a lander paired with it yeah i mean i I guess it kind of does you know like the sky crane is kind of like a lander just uh, upside down right but i mean this seems a little bit more practical to me i don't know actually like putting something on mars is always difficult no matter how you do it but uh because the sky crane has to has to lower the vehicle and then detach this just has to land and then once it's ready the rover can come down so you can take your time before you separate that just seems like a better idea yeah different strategies uh call in the chat's absolutely correct um the reason that the sky crane is on top instead of being a lander on the bottom is so that you um keep the the landing area more uh more pristine more pristine i don't know if you can quantify pristineness but you know to to keep the landing zone clean but 
I mean, keep in mind that that the U.S. has done this rover strategy. Uh, Sojourner drove off the top of uh, Pathfinder. <laughs> uh, Sojourner drove off the top of Pathfinder. Um, but I, I think it really comes down to just like size limitations. If you're going to put a rover on top of a lander, I, I think something as big as uh, a Mini Cooper, uh, a Cooper Mini is not very conducive to, you know, including a ramp big enough to support it. Uh, whereas when you got a smaller vehicle like this, it it's okay to do right. that if you're okay with um, spraying hydrazine into the surface of Mars. Yeah, which I mean, I kind of would be because you can do your research somewhere else. You don't have to. It's not. Yeah. It's it's not like you can't move. So H- hence the roving. It it really comes down to whether how many instruments you're putting on the rover and how many instruments you're keeping on the lander. I I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, Jurong is uh, slated for a 90 day primary mission, um, and and it's kind of interesting because that 90 day primary mission is dependent on Tianwen-1 being able to relay messages home. And the orbiter is currently in a rover support orbit, but it's going to be, we talked about this, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago. Oh, we, you know what? We probably talked about it when they launched. So the orbiter is currently in a, a rover support orbit, but it's planned later on to go down to uh, a science orbit. And, you know, it's it's only... Right now, it's planned to support this 90-day mission. Um, if they decide to extend this mission, I think it's going to be interesting to see if they keep Tianwen-1 where it is, or if they move it and just, you know, accept po- poorer coverage, less uh, less coverage of the ground or of the of uh, Utopia Planitia where the rover is. But uh, my expectation is that they're going to get to the end of 90 days and and move on with the schedule. Those 90 days are going to be filled with. Um, Lots of science. I looked up the instruments on the rover in particular, and they are all absolutely crazy acronyms um, with lots of lowercase letters. Um, so I think the coolest one is Roper, R-O-P-E-R. Uh, it's their ground penetrating radar, and they're looking for um, subsurface water with it. Uh, that's a great. Um, could you imagine finding, you know, a giant subsurface reservoir in the middle of Utopia Planitia? Like, yes, let's go build some uh, Star Trek spaceships. Yeah, that's where you do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's also uh, Romag, um, their magnetic field detector. Um, there's uh, uh, an instrument that has two names. They're, it's referred to by two different names, MCS and MMMI. It's their uh, climate station. So, you know, an anemometer and a thermometer and a barometric sense, a barometric pressure sensor. Um, then there is Mars code. It, so it's Mar-S-Code, D-E. <laughs> it's such a, such a weird acronym. Um, but I actually... Only reading it this time aloud, I realized that it was Mars Code and not Mars Coda. So, yeah, um, maybe that's just me. But Mars Code is a uh, a pair of spectroscopes or like a blended spectroscope. I'm not exactly sure, but it's uh, laser spectroscopy and infrared spectroscopy. So like the... Oh, yeah, I guess it'd be the same thing because you use a laser to obliterate a rock and then you use infrared to actually do the spectroscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's uh, MS Cam. I think it's MS Cam. It's their multi spectral camera. 
uh, pretty straightforward acronym there. And then there's also Nate Cam or Nate Cam. I don't. <laughs> or I, I tend cam. to think yeah, Nate know. is probably wrong, but it, it's just their uh, their pair of cameras, uh, navigation and uh, topological camera. Um, and, and so those are the six science payloads on, on the, on the rover. And it's, it's going to go out and, and do some science. And in that great, you know, more science, more better. Yes. More science, more better. Couldn't agree more. And those aren't bad acronyms, especially when you consider, I don't, I don't know who came up with them, but, uh, you know, this is, uh, the Chinese space agency, uh, in English is not their first language. So they did a pretty good job. Um, <laughs> it's hard enough for us to do it, you know, for like, you know, like an English speaking country to come up with a decent acronym. Some of these are better than some of the ones that I've seen before. So <laughs> true. Absolutely true. And so I don't think we can leave this segment without, uh, pointing out that. China is now the second country uh, to land a rover on Mars and not smash it into the surface. Like second co- country, and it's it's 2021. Like it took a heck of a long time for us to get from one country to two countries on Mars. It's a little shocking, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's not for lack of trying, though, because I mean, like you pointed out. The caveat is that they had succeeded, whereas there are other countries that have tried but have failed. Russia tried to ever land anything on Mars and then fail, or do they just not have an interest? Because I know that they focused mostly uh, on Venus. That was like no, their they, thing. No, they've done, they've done landers on Mars, I believe, but not Oh, rovers. but just not a rover. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, yeah. So Russia has successfully landed two vehicles, Mars 3 and Mars 6, uh, and uh, smashed Mars 2 into the surface. Yeah. Uh, ExoMars was not successful and beagle 2 uh was not successful and that's it i i love this uh on wikipedia there's an article called list of artificial objects on mars and they're color-coded uh no data collection transmitted data operational and failed and uh exomars uh exomars's schiaparelli uh their uh edm demonstrator is I think what they were calling it but that line for ExoMars is yellow uh, because it transmitted descent telemetry and like if that isn't the most optimistic thing like I I really like that that they're give they give it a yellow stripe because it transmitted descent telemetry All right, let's do three short and sweets. What is the first one, Ben? All right, Rocket Lab failure analysis ish. Rocket Lab issued a press release with a small amount of information on the running out of toes recovery and second stage failure. The second stage Rutherford was shut down by the computer after the engine sensors returned out of family data. While losses of mission are never fun, this is the way rockets are supposed to work. The company says that they're continuing to investigate the data in cooperation with the FAA, and they expect minimal impact on the rest of their 2021 launch schedule. The release also confirms that selected components recovered from the first stage are likely to be reflown, and that a third recovery test is expected to happen later this year. And then next up, Crew 3 finalized. So NASA has announced Kayla Barron will take the fourth seat on this mission, joining Commander Raja Chari, Pilot Thomas Marshburn, and ESA's Matthias Maurer. I think I said that right. Apologies if I didn't. This mission is full of notable events. It features the first two astronauts from Astronaut Group 22 to fly. Chari and Barron were both selected 
adopted in 2017. It is commanded by only the seventh first flight commander in NASA's history, and it is flying both the youngest, Baron at 33, and oldest, Marshburn, age 60, long-duration station crew members. Okay, so that's pretty cool. 33 through 60. Yeah. And finally, Spaceship Two returns to the skies after an aborted launch in December and several blind flights. This week, Spaceship Two fired up its engine and powered its way up to 89 kilometers for the first time since February 2019. SS2 and White Knight 2 lifted off from Spaceport America in New Mexico and, quote, hit it as near perfect as you can in a test flight, according to Mike Moses. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and corrections. Then we have a, I guess, a clarification slash correction. Yeah. Who is it? Ben Hallert. Ben Hallert. From Ben Hallert. All right. So this is going to be a good one because Ben always has the best, I feel like, yeah. the best comments and corrections right. for us. Yeah. And, and so this is this is a good clarification. I'll just read this verbatim. Uh, David's comments may have left folks with the impression that SpaceX is not recovering fairings anymore. Uh, I don't think Ben caught that. Yeah. So um, we were talking about fairing recovery last week. It's not that they are not recovering fairings. It's that they're not catching them in nets uh, anymore. Um, and what's interesting is um, Ben then talked a little bit about their new fairing catching ship. Uh, the Sheila Board Leon. And what's interesting is they, they were going to dedicate, um, the Board Leon to just doing, or to be their, like, sole fairing catcher, uh, on the East Coast. And they actually retired the, the ship for some reason. I'm not sure. Uh, but Go Searcher, um, is, uh, back to doing, uh, fairing recovery. I believe Ghost Searcher was the, the fairing recovery boat that they started out with. That's a good point. So I did fail to make that distinction because obviously they're not yeah. just going to like not go get them. You know what I mean? Like they're not just going to say, yeah. okay, it fell somewhere in the ocean. Um, but to me, it seems, well, so now I don't even remember. Um, so like if you do recover it from the ocean, what does that mean for reuse? Like I just don't remember anymore uh, what yeah. they do with fairings after they fish them out of the ocean. Yeah. I mean, presumably, you know, they're able to reuse some components and they're able to reuse enough components that it's worth the effort. Um, but apparently the, the value is high enough that they're okay with, uh, calling off their fairing catching attempts so yeah I, I don't know either how much uh how much recovery it, or refurbishing it takes it's been a while because they've been doing this for some time now and uh back when they did just fish them out of the ocean i don't remember what they did with them and i remember i think elon Musk talking about you know why it's so bad for these things to be submerged in water i seem to recall it, it does some kind of damage where it like you really can't just put the whole thing back on a rocket i might be wrong about that but the salt water is just really bad stuff and pretty corrosive. You think it'd be possible to build a fairing in such a way that it's much more resilient to salt water and like you just like hose it off and put it back sure, on? Sure, but it, it'll it'll be heavier. Well, I mean, sure, you'd have yeah. to take that penalty, but it might be worth it. Yeah. So so it, it was actually Mr. Steven that was the uh, the fairing recovery boat. Let me do a quick correction burn. Oh, and then Go Searcher and Go Navigator also apparently did uh, – fairing half recovery. But what's interesting is that, you know, you're talking about doing modifications to allow you to do reuse better, but they have actually done some modifications. Like they've moved, uh, the vent, the, 
like the vents for um for the ascent they've moved those vents uh closer to the seam the separation plane in the middle um so that the vents are higher up above the water or you know they're they're not totally covered in water when it's uh floating as a little impromptu boat uh so that makes it a little easier to recover them so that they have done that Oh, okay. Uh, Mike in the chat says, uh, Miss Tree, who used to be Mr. Steven. So Miss Tree and Miss Chief were used, uh, for, uh, for fair recovery. That's right. Uh, I don't think I put it together that Mr. Steven was renamed to Miss Tree. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So moving on then to uh, this week in spaceflight history. Let's see if I get these facts right. Okay. <laughs> so hopefully, um, this is a hard one to do because it's not like a, uh, it, well, it's an event, but it's, you know, yeah. not like a single event. Yeah. It's a bit, it's a bit nebulous. I'm impressed that we had so many people guess correctly. Yeah. So, um, so the winners this week were Eric, Peter McMally, and Pierre Louis Fan. And this week in spaceflight history was, uh, the 30th of May, 1975, and it was the founding of ESA. And we had one other guess that was wrong, but actually it fit my clue perfectly. Um, I forget who that was that gave that clue. Uh, Psykyle. Psykyle, yeah. Yeah, so Psykyle guessed. Um, the clue was, let's, you know, let's unify something. And he mentions Soyuz and a docking. And I'm like, well, that's perfect because Soyuz means unity and they were docking. Like that's, yeah. that event probably fits the clue better than what I came up with. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we fit the clues to the events, not the other way around. So yeah. Yeah, sometimes. And I believe that the event that he mentioned, we might have discussed it on a past This Week in Spaceflight History, oh, possibly. Yeah, wouldn't be surprised. So yeah, this was actually the founding of ESA. And uh, yeah, this is a hard one to kind of like encapsulate because it's a whole bunch of things that, you know, it's a lot of political machinations that basically lead up to the founding of the organization. So I guess we're going to kind of talk more about that. But really, I guess we should start with what incited this. For that, you kind of have to go back to the 1950s, and you kind of have to think about the state of Europe just after World War II. And you have to take into consideration that we were in the middle of a Cold War. So you had the United States and Russia, and they were essentially like ramping up to this massive space race. And then you have these much smaller European nations. Uh, They're kind of like left out in the cold, as it were. And so there's a there was a lot of brain drain, as it's called, from Europe to the U.S. because that's where all of the interesting stuff in the realm of spaceflight was happening, and not just that, but you know, in a whole bunch of other scientific disciplines. Um, I didn't list any, unfortunately, but if you can think of it, you know, like physics or whatever, like everything. Um, that's where everyone was going was the U.S. and maybe to a lesser extent the U.S.S.R., but probably not. Um, I imagine that was probably happening in Eastern Europe. But um, in 1958, and this is just after the launch of Sputnik, there were two European scientists, Eduardo. Eduardo Amaldi and Pierre Auger, who were from Italy and France respectively, they met to discuss the founding of a quote-unquote Western European Space Agency. And so I guess you have to keep in mind that, again, this is during the Cold War. So we're talking about Western Europe here, not so much Eastern Europe. These two gentlemen, and I didn't know anything about them because I you know, had never bothered to look into it, but they were very key figures in the founding of CERN as well. So these were scientists who you know, had a large part to play in the establishment of a lot of European organizations. So it- is this Pierre Auger the same as the uh, the physicist or the, the chemist? Like he did, because there, there's a famous. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, like he did um, um, atomic uh, physics, and like yeah, he, his his name was super familiar, and I had to go look it up. And like he did, he did work on cosmic rays as well. So it, it makes sense that he was also interested in space. But that's cool. That that's the same person. Like he. <laughs> yeah. 
he helped found ESA. That's awesome. Yeah, he worked in the field of atomic physics, but okay. uh, he was, I, I think it was more like he was kind of, he was asked by Eduardo Amaldi, you know, because they were already friends. And so they kind of got together. And so these were men who were kind of thinking not so much within just their respective fields, but, you know, yeah. what do you do about Europe as a whole? Yeah. So these two in particular helped found CERN, and then that wasn't enough. So they went and founded ESA as well. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very definition of like international mind. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and they were very internationally minded, you know, like, uh, so this was not just because, like, I don't think it was just because they wanted to accomplish certain things that they couldn't do otherwise, although, although that probably was the biggest reason, but they did see Europe as being this collection of countries, which would be much better if it worked together. And uh, they put science first. Like, that's a good way of putting it. Um, That was very much the philosophy that they had. Certainly, that's what Amaldi felt. And so, yeah, he wanted some kind of a Western European space organization that uh, focused on science. So this was like very, again, I mean, he is a scientist. His thought was not so much that uh, space needed to be explored. Well, I guess it did, but there is science to be had in space. And so that's what he wanted to know. And for that, you need to have a space agency. Mm. What I found interesting was that he saw rocket technology as only a means to an end, um, mm. which is kind of not how we think of NASA, for example. Like, I think if you ask most Americans, what is NASA? That's the space agency that builds these giant rockets and, you know, things like the space shuttle. Yeah, well, heck, I mean, Von Braun, like, that that's literally his mo he didn't care what the rockets yeah. were used for he just wanted to build rockets and so yeah that's that's a stark contrast that's very cool yeah and so this is the inverse of that this is somebody who doesn't care about the rocket he just needs it to get his <laughs> payload into space i shouldn't just say he but it was um both these two guys in particular but also some other founding members of the european space agency eventually or you know some other heads of state and so forth and i shouldn't say heads of state mostly just scientists they did not want the military to be involved um again this is you know, science for the sake of science. And there was some amount of having to deal with the military because if you're going to be breaking in rockets, then, you know, that just cannot be avoided. But otherwise, they wanted the free flow of scientific research among nations. Uh, they did not want it to be restricted by ITAR and things of that nature, which we have here. So there was um, a commission formed called COPERS, which is actually a French acronym, but uh, the English, it is uh, the Preparatory European Commission for Space Research. And so this organization, again, a lot of science scientists. And it really was mostly scientists, not necessarily people in, in the domain of aerospace, although there were some of those as well. So uh, we're kind of leading up to the founding of ESA. But actually, what happens instead is in 1962, it was decided to have two agencies. The first one was called ESRO, uh, which is uh, E-S-R-O, and that was the European Space Research Organization. Then there was ELDO, which was the European Launch Development Organization. So you have the one that is charged with doing all the scientific research and and then you have the other one uh, whose responsibility is really just to build the rocket in order to do that research. And that's really all that that was for. So the 10 founding members of these two organizations or the 10 founding member states were the United Kingdom, France, Belgium, Italy, Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, Germany, and Denmark. And so the tack that they took, because they did at least know the construction of a fully orbit class rocket, especially back in the early 1960s, was probably not feasible. So they decided to go with sounding rockets. And, you know, you can do a lot of research with sounding rockets. So that's actually something that's, you know, still done to this day. So most of the research was actually just, you know, kept to that kind of thing, you you know, just sending up these rockets and taking some atmospheric measurements, reading samples, whatever, doing these various experiments. During that time, they actually were developing 
like the Eldo side of things, uh, they were developing a three-stage rocket, um, which was really, and this is a very European Space Agency rocket, because it was actually a combination of various um, like rocket stages from across Europe. So you had the Blue Streak rocket, which was from the UK, and we've talked about that a bit. There was Blue Streak, and then there was later the Black Arrow project, which Great Britain decided to leave this particular project for Black Arrow. But at least initially, they provided the first stage with uh, the Blue Street component. And then the second stage was uh, the Coralie, which is a French-built second stage. Then the third stage was Asterisk. The Asterisk was an upper stage developed by Germany. But yeah, so the reason why you might not have heard much about this rocket is because it wasn't too successful. So there were 11 launches and there were only four that succeeded. But now at this point, we're, you know, we're getting closer to the actual founding of ESA. So we're getting closer to that. So Britain pulled out of this particular launch vehicle and their first stage was replaced with the French Diamant rocket, which um, was the first exclusively French expendable launch system. It was the first thing to put anything into orbit that was not launched by either the U.S. or the U.S. Are. Huh. So they were having problems with their launch vehicle development, which is, uh, that's to be expected. That whole program was actually dismantled in 1974. And at this point, it was decided these two organizations should actually be joined and they should, you know, just call it the European Space Agency. <laughs> um, so that founding was in 1975, although the actual decision to actually go forward with that, that happened a few years earlier. I guess the signature or whatever, the ratification, however you put that, uh, you know, that was actually put into effect in 1975. And uh, this too had the same founding 10 member states, although later on in that year, they were joined by Ireland. And their first scientific mission was Cause B, and this was a, a satellite that monitored gamma ray emissions, which was pretty cool. And that ran for six years, which was four years longer than was planned. So, you know, a modest but very successful first mission. And so at this point, we have, you know, an actual functioning European Space Agency. And then in 1978, Canada was made a cooperating state, which I did not know. Um, I just kind of think of Canada as its own thing. And they do have the Canadian Space Agency, but they are considered a cooperating state. Now, NASA is also a cooperating organization, but they're not considered a cooperating state. So I guess there is a distinction there. I don't know exactly what that is. So so um, for Ireland, you, do you know if they're still part of ESA? Like, do you know what kind of contributions have been made? Because it doesn't really seem like it would be a high priority for a country, I mean, that small and with that many other like existential things to worry about. So currently they are still members. I mean, they yeah. are still I, I just looked at their at their page on ESA's website. So hoping to find like, you know, a, a, a vehicle that they contributed to or something just out of, out of curiosity. Because I, yeah. I mean, I, I should have I realized, but it... it it had never occurred to me that the Republic of Ireland would be part of ESA, which is pretty cool. Kind of, kind of in the same way that Canada, you know, you think about it as being the CSA, but it's, it's also a, what, what is it called? A cooperative yeah. partner? A cooperating state. So not a fully fledged one, but, you know, definitely in close cooperation. Yeah. So currently, um, if I read correctly, there are 22 current member states. So it has grown considerably from that original 10. And uh, I don't remember exactly what the original ones I just said were. But uh, among the new ones, you have the Czech Republic, Finland, Estonia, Romania, Hungary, Greece, Luxembourg, and I think that's it. I might be missing one, but a continually growing organization. So yeah, a little bit about their launch vehicle problem. So I guess it's no surprise since we now live in modern times, you know, these 40 years later or whatever. Um, the real launcher workhorse of uh, 
the European Space Agency is, of course, the Arian rocket, um, or really the Arian rocket family, but right now the Arian 5. But they started uh, with their first launch of uh, the Arian 1 in 1979, and they were successful with that maiden flight. And so uh, from there, you know, they decided to move forward with the development of successive launch vehicles. And really, that signaled the end of the American monopoly on, you know, the commercial launch market. Mm. Because up until then, you could really only go with an American, what was it back in the 1970s? I can't even think. Uh, I mean, geez. A- Atlas. The Atlas. Yeah. I mean, so by 1979, I mean, you have uh, the Arian launch vehicle competing. And so I guess you can, I think you can really see why it ended up being so successful because really up until SpaceX, right, they were, I believe, you know, that's who you went with and to a lesser extent, some Russian launch vehicles. But if you were Intelsat or whoever, and you needed to get something into orbit, people tended to go with the Arian rocket. And that was the case for quite a while because uh, the American options were generally just too expensive. And so that's kind of ironic uh, that you had the establishment of ESA for purely scientific reasons and the you end up with a lot of their success being in, you know, the commercial launch market. But I mean, that's not to say that they haven't done many, many great things as far as actual space exploration and scientific research. And really, I didn't, you know, compile a list because it's just too numerous to mention. And really, this is about the founding of ESA. So I'm just trying to focus on that. Um, and the facilities, and this kind of reminds me of how we do things here in the States with NASA, you kind of want each state or a good spread of, you know, facilities across the country. It uh, incentivizes our politicians to support NASA when they, you know, have a controlling interest within their own state. And so that might be kind of what's going on with Europe, but probably not. I mean, I mean, kind of, I think, I think the term is buy-in. I think that the term that you were looking for is buy-in. Okay. Yeah. Like, like having people who both stand to benefit, but are also, you know, also stand to, to lose an investment. Like that's the way that, um, that a lot of organizations are able to, you know, build up ahead of steam and keep going. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's certainly a, a robust way of doing things. So yeah, it makes sense that you would want to spread that out as much as you can. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, what does that spread look like? We have like six or seven organizations across the continent. Um, some really interesting acronyms here. The first one is STEC, which is the European Space Technology and Research Center. And that's in Nordwijk, which is in the Netherlands. And this was actually the original ISRO facility. So this is, you know, like kind of like where it all started. This is where they test and construct satellites and payloads, things of that nature. The next one is uh, the ISA Center for Earth Observation, and that's in Frascati, Italy, or Frascati, Italy. That focuses on Earth observation. Uh, then there's uh, the ISA Mission Control, which is called ESOC, and that's in Darmstadt, Germany. That looks really cool. Um, that's the one, if you've ever seen photos of it, it just looks, uh, it's a very nice, clean, uh, stylish facility with big screens. It looks a little bit more like SpaceX and a little less like NASA Mission Control. Um, not quite like either one, though. I do like the layout of uh, their Mission Control Center. It, it just looks like Mission Control, you know. Then there's uh, the European Astronaut Center, the EAC, and that's located in Cologne, Germany. And then there's ESCAT, which is the European Center for Space Application and Telecommunications, and that's in Harwell, and that's in England. And then the European Space Astronomy Center, or ESAC, as opposed to ESOC, which was the mission control. So you have to keep all these separated, yeah. And that's in Madrid, Spain. Yeah, you you mentioned uh, ESCAT in England. So the UK was actually one of the founding countries, and it looks like yeah. their withdrawal from the EU is has not affected their 
status as an ESA member state. So Correct. that's good. Yeah. So I, I guess I guess my shock that Ireland was part of ESA was unwarranted because Ireland was actually also a founding member. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's pretty cool. And, you know, one cool thing I would like to see one day is I would like to see ESA put its own astronauts into space just to board their own launch vehicle. I think that'd be cool. And I, and I know that there's no real reason for that because you don't have to do that. You can get a flight with, you know, like SpaceX or whoever. But I just think it would be a cool thing to see just for the cool factor. Well, I mean, uh, Ariane 5 uh, and Hermes could could do that. Yeah, but they never did, did they? So Right, right, right. But I mean, like, you know, Ariane 5 is crew rated. So like, yeah, that that is a possibility. Anyway, yep. So that's your history of the founding of ESA. <laughs> Next week, uh, the date range you have is the 1st through the 7th of June. So what is the clue for next week, Ben? All right. Next week in 2012... The clue is binoculars to plowshares. So that's very recent, 2012, or yeah. recent by our standards. Uh, binoculars to plowshares. So it, the old expression is what? Uh, swords to plowshares, right? Isn't that mm-hmm. something that it's like in the Bible or something? I yeah, think. it's a biblical. <laughs> yeah. But it's 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 a great like expression, I think. But yeah, that's next week in 2012. So if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Cool. Well, let's move on to some upcoming spaceflight events. We got actually one, two, three, four. We got like five different events, I think, and a lot of launches, it looks like. Okay, so first up is uh, Starlink uh, version 1.0. This is launch 28. Uh, Of course, that's flying on a Falcon 9 out of Slick 40 uh, at Cape Canaveral. Um, You know, like six of these suckers. (laughs) We do so many Starlinks. Uh, That is launching on May 26th. At uh, 1859 hours UTC. Next up on the 27th is a Soyuz 2.1B with the Frigate M upper stage, and that's launching OneWeb 7, and that's another batch of 36 satellites for the OneWeb constellation. So that's going to be launching from Vostochny Cosmodrome in Siberia, Russia, pad site 1S. I don't know if that'll be televised, but you might be able to watch that. And the launch time is uh, at 1743 UTC. Again, on the 27th. So keep an eye out for that one. Then after that, we have uh, Feng Yun 4B uh, launching. It's a uh, geostationary weather satellite. And we don't have a time for this, but we believe that it's going to be launching sometime on May 27th uh, on a Long March uh, 3B. And then after that, on June 1st, is a Falcon 9 launch with um, the SXM-8 satellite, which is a Sirius XM satellite. It's launching from Slick 40 at Cape Canaveral, and the launch time is 0425 UTC, or 1225 in the morning Eastern Daylight Time. So that's going to be pretty early. Um, or late, I guess, depending on probably late. <laughs> you can just <laughs> stay up and watch that one. But it's always fun to watch a Falcon 9 go up. So check that one out. Okay, then after that, we've got two keep an eye outs for. Uh, the first is Tianzhou 2, um, which is going to be the first uh, cargo vehicle uh, to go to the br- that brand new space station. It's still got mm-hmm. the good uh, new space station smell. Um, and then also, we're hoping to see Ingenuity Flight 6 uh, happen sometime this week. Uh, as far as David and I can tell, it's not going to be live streamed. So 
um, you know, you're going to be reading about it after the fact and maybe seeing some nice photos. There were some, uh, nice photos of, uh, flight five. Like that was supposed to be the end. We were supposed to get a six and we're getting a six. I'm so excited. <laughs> it's fantastic. We'll probably get a seventh too, maybe, you know? Oh yeah. I, at this point, I mean, if we, if we do fewer than 10, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be surprised. All right. Well, those are your upcoming space flight events. So with that, let's deal with the show then. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links for Orbital Podcast on both. And you can directly talk to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that is it, and we will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.